0: Stay off your phones on the days of a match. I, yeah. I don't recall who you spoke with. It was a, a researcher or uh, somebody who you had discussed with that. It, it decreases the peripheral yeah. by this funneling on a, onto a phone, I guess. But that, that's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, it was fascinating. It was one of, was one of the um, last pieces of research I added in doing this. I, I went back to this this film that I saw of uh, of England's rugby team under Clive Woodward when they were brilliant. And they did a lot of physical eye training, um, just exercise and training their eyes to be more perceptive, more responsive, you know, almost like treating eyes like muscle. And it turns out that there are people who do this. And I read up on, um, you know, the scientist in South Africa and it's a ton of really interesting stuff about how she trains players eyes. But one of the things she she says is there are long-term factors and short-term factors, which is over the long run, you want your eyes to be nimble and quick and developed and strong. But you also, when you stare into a phone, you restrict your peripheral vision you um build habits for your eyes that are counterproductive even in the short run and so i just thought that you know one of her takeaways is you should be off your phone on the day of competition if you want your eyes to be doing their best work while you're playing wow which is i mean you think i just think about like all the sports you know where kids spend four hours in the car staring at their phones then they get out of the car and they play
0: yeah all right Do you use that with your own kids? And this is Doug Lemoff, by the way. His new book is A Coach's Guide to Teaching, which I highly, highly recommend. But he has two children that play the sport and uh, anything
1: I can do to get them off their phones. I'm going to do so. (laughs) This is I'm going to circle that passage. And All
0: right. On to chapter uh, two. And uh, again, we just want to take a brief look at each chapter and I. No, some of these looks are not so brief, but it's just—it's really fascinating stuff, Doug. And this one, yeah. long-term memory, mm-hmm. vastly underappreciated by most educators, which I don't quite get because if you teach something, you want—you want your students uh, to remember it. And yeah. uh, f- for a coach, it's teaching it on a Tuesday and making sure it's remembered on a Thursday, and then the game on the weekend. As a club yeah. coach, you know. So, uh, so what are your
1: tips? Sure. Well, the first thing is just to be aware that, you know, one of the single most pervasive factors in learning is forgetting. Uh, you have forgotten almost everything that you've learned in your life. If you doubt me, have children wait 15 oh my years gosh. and try and try and help them with their homework. <laughs> it's game over. Um, yeah. But uh, the, That's the, almost the,
0: sad. That's kind of sad to think about.
1: It I, is. I mean, it's 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 incredible. It's also incredible to think about how much more productive you could be if you could remember more of what you learned but it's no yeah. different for your athletes, which is they're forgetting almost everything that they've, they've learned um, on the field. And so there are a couple of different, I think, ways that this is important. One, Harry Fletcher Wood, who's this really brilliant writer in the teaching sector, says, you know, performance during, during, tra- during training or during learning is, uh, or during teaching is fundamentally different from learning. What you see at the end of practice, you work on pressing for 45 minutes at the, at, in your practice on Tuesday, And you see effective pressing, and so you think that you have learning, but you don't have learning, you have performance, because as soon as your players walk off the field, they start to forget. And in the book, I have a picture of a forgetting curve, and this is something that cognitive scientists have known since the first forgetting curve was tracked in the 1880s, which is, twenty. you know, six hours later, people will remember 40% of what you know, 60% of what they learned, they will have forgotten 40% of what they learned. A day later, they will remember even less, you know, forgetting is ruthless. And so... That's why we get in these situations on Saturday where we say, guys, I thought we talked about, we talked about pressing all week. Well, the problem is that um, we did and they did it well at the end of practice on Tuesday, but they have since forgotten it. And that is one of the most reliable events in learning. And so the defense against forgetting is retrieval practice, which is I learn something and then I go away from it and I stop working on it. And then I come back to it again. And as players struggle to remember it, that struggle to remember it encodes it more deeply into long-term memory and so these cycles of begin to, the best, the best time to remember something a cognitive scientist says is when you've begun to forget it. And so mm-hmm. one, recognizing that even a perfect session on a topic like pressing or building out of the back will not be able to get you to long-term mastery because it will not include retrieval practice. So most of it will, most of it will, will leave players long-term memory that I'm gonna have to come back to it on multiple sessions with increasing probably distance between those sessions. Uh, and this is frankly something that we very rarely do intentionally. And so we're on this constant, um, you know, uh, hamster wheel of like- uh, Right, because le- you're, trying to to cover, yeah.
0: you're trying to cover a lot of different things in, in a relatively short period of time. No lang- if you have your team three to four times a week, including yep. a match, it's uh, that's tough. So when, when do you. And so we never get things long? in long term
1: memory, right? And so no. players are always forgetting and then we're exactly. reteaching, and then they're forgetting and then we're reteaching and then we're forgetting and we say, guys, I feel like I'm talking. I think I feel like I'm It's going one <laughs> ear and out the other. And that's because it is.
0: I'll tell you, as a college coach, where it was really frustrating is is go is, is having a yeah. point of emphasis in the spring, yeah. you know, with the you know, you have a you, maybe you're changing your system, whatever it might be. And then they come back that you can't coach them during the summer. And then they come back for preseason. Right. And it's like, Starting over, starting from, yeah, you're starting
1: over. I think one of the simplest things that the coaches can do is um, planning in units of let's say four to six weeks. I think that's the, a good rule of thumb for an amount of time that's necessary to, to learn something so that it's in long-term mastering players. Remember it, which I think is interesting because I think most teams and coaches who plan methodically plan in one week intervals, right? We plan in one week intervals because we're playing we're we're playing NYCFC next week, and so we need to plan for that game. And so my my training for that week is based on Saturday's match. And maybe I'm also play, you know like my weekly cycles are built on you know on on physical load, and I want to have you know light days and heavy days. And so like I'm not going to plan that twice, right? So I just plan out my week's training. But if I really wanted to think about the long term, beyond this week's game, that I want players a year from now to remember this really well, I would need to like teach it once or twice get it stable, go on to a different topic, come back to it two or three days later, go on to a different topic, come back to it four or five days later, go on to a different, come back to it, you know, again, in like little pieces multiple times. And that requires a longer longer duration of time than a single week to get things into long-term memory. And I just think precious few people do that. And in fact, the focus on short-term planning becomes more and more emphatic as players get higher and, you know, you get higher and higher in the, in the, game the games get more important the games get more and more important they drive more and more the learning process i just think that's why a lot of players stall at that point
0: can, can you begin the retrieval practice yeah uh, so you've had a training session let's go tuesday night it yeah. ends at 8 p.m and uh the kids are on their way home and then maybe have something for them in their inbox when they arrive so at home or yeah. you know things like that
1: I love what you're thinking about here, right? Which is technology allows us to like lower the transaction cost to having conversations about content with with athletes, and so I think that would be a super smart thing. So, like one very simple thing to do is, I think a lot of when I when I first started coach studying coaching, I really believed in block practice, which is like let's spend an hour on this topic to really nail it. But in fact, one of the things that we that cognitive scientists say that is if you if you shift topics to something else briefly, let's say we're working on pressing. And I pause and we go on to building out of the back briefly. Everything that we just did on pressing gets moved out of working memory by kids are now focused on building out of the back. So then if I go back to pressing, players will have to work harder to remember what we had talked about. They will struggle. They will perform less well in practice, but they will remember more of it. And so by switching activities, um, Hmm. I can actually create the illusion, create the equivalent of time passage. And so I could actually within my practice, work on something for 20 minutes, go to something else, come back to it for 20 minutes and sort of create an equivalent effect. And then I could do something like then the next day, send you a video and say, send me a text back describing um, which of the three things we talked about.
0: So that that was retrieval practice within a practice.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, fascinating. And you know, a lot of this stuff is, I think we're, I'll just, I'll be totally honest. I don't know all the right answers about how to implement this. I think coaches are just beginning to figure it out. The cognitive science is just beginning to sort of come into the you know, into sort of common understanding and common knowledge. And so, like, there's just a lot to be figured out about how to best implement this. But, I, you know, so first I start by just trying to describe the science, which is what do we know about yeah. building long term memory? And then I have some like ideas about how to implement it. That the um, only thing I know for sure is that some of that has to be wrong.
0: Well, you talk about intentionality and we're with Doug Lemoff. His new book is a coach's guide uh, to teaching. Uh, he works for uh, U.S. soccer. Uh, teaches courses uh, within the uh, pro license, the director's course, coaches as educators and teachers, and moving on to a chapter that talks about feedback and questioning, where you use the science of working memory, this is your words, and attention to propose rules to help athletes learn more from our guidance. So... There's so much of our coaching lives, we give feedback, there's questions both ways. So what exactly are you focused on here?
1: Feedback is something we do incredibly commonly, one of the most frequent coaching actions that we do. And so you know, it's easy to overlook it and not really reflect on it, but there's a, there's a lot that I think cognitive science can teach us about how to do it better. One piece of advice I'd start with would be something that um, a coach with New Zealand rugby said to me when I was down there doing a workshop. And he said, when you chase five rabbits, you catch none and we ask players to chase five rabbits all the time, right? We're, we're working on something in practice. We stop them. We say, right. When we're building out of the back, the ball needs to be, the ball needs to be struck at pace. Uh, it needs to be struck on the ground. It needs to be struck to, you know, to the back foot and your eyes need to be up. And Jenna, you need to be higher so you can uh, so you can press into space as the space as the outside back. Let me see that now go, right? I've just asked players to do five things at once. And so it's worth thinking about in you know, in the framework of working memory, which really you can hold one thing in working memory, possibly two at a time, right? What's going to happen to those players? They're either going to, each one is going to choose at random one of the five things that you just told them to focus on. And then when you stop them again in five minutes, you won't know who's focused on what and whether they've made any progress. And you'll just have to say the same five things over again, or in an effort to remember to do five things, they'll end up doing none of them. And so, so often in our practices, in the effort to accelerate learning, we say one more thing and one more thing and one more thing. And all it ends up doing is, I think. Slowing learning, and it'll be much better if I pause practice and I pause. When we're building out of the back, girls, the ball must be struck at pace. For the next two minutes, that's all I'm going to be watching for. I want to see every ball struck at pace on the ground. Go. Yes, Jenna, that's the way to strike it. Uh, uh, faster, Kirsty, strike, you know, strike the ball faster. It's got to be on the ground, right? So now I'm One helping players to focus on a single thing, and I can gauge their progress and decide whether I need to focus on this or, not, or go to the other thing and helping them to believe that my feedback is important because as soon as I stop feedback during the stoppage, then I'm narrating back to them whether I see them doing it or not. And so they're, they're now learning faster. And so ironically, if you did five short rounds of each focused on one piece of feedback and then narrated back to players whether they did it, they would learn a lot more quickly than if you tried to jam five pieces of feedback into one stoppage.
0: Doug, I, uh, you've mentioned them a couple of times and I'm wondering how, uh, how much time you spent with the all blacks and how they've impacted, uh, maybe not only, uh, what's contained in this book, but your teachings, uh, overall.
1: Yeah, it's, it's such a remarkable, I only, I only had the pleasure of being down there for a couple of days, uh, but it really like, it's an incredible, incredible organization from the humility with which they approach, you know, the job of being a coach and the job of being a player, you know, there's, um, it's just striking, you know, you, um, it's a nation of five million people. They have the best number one ranked rugby team in the world most years, and uh, their nation's identity is wrapped up. In, it's just very wrapped up, and the pressure on them to be great is immense. Um, and the humility with which they go about it is incredible. You know, I went down there, and we were talking about feedback. Interestingly, and you asked earlier about videos that I was reluctant to show. I showed that I was. Right up until the minute I showed them this video, I was really reluctant to show this video. It was, it was a video of, of two ballerinas where one, ba- one uh, ballet dancer is giving the other uh, ballerina feedback on how to like make gestures with her arms in a way that focuses on like, here's some rules, uh, here's some themes and here's some variations, right? Here are the rules to follow and then here are the, the areas where you have discretion and they like they tore that video apart in a good way, meaning like every moment, every interaction between the two dancers, they were fascinated in how you would apply that on the rugby. You know, these are like these are like man mountain. They're six foot five guys, you know, like right, right, uh,
0: right.
1: I'll just add that I went up, uh, you know, happened to have gone up for a pint or two uh, with them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they were um, it was just about, you know, they were very, very willing to to get everything they could, these guys out of uh, a video that was, you know, just from a very different world from their own. Um, And so, you know, one of the things I took away from the culture is just, is the humility that leads to excellence there.
0: Doug Lemoff, our guest, Doug, over the years, and and I've observed this and, you know, it's, it's happened to me. And um, I'm sure a number of coaches, you have the same group of players for extended time two, three, four, five years and and to try to keep them listening and learning. And I know um, one of your chapters is how do you know whether anyone is learning anything? Uh, What do you do if you sense they're not? So I don't know if we could tie those two things together, but how do we create longevity in players listening to us?
1: Yeah, maybe I focus on two things here. I think one is we have to, every time we give feedback to players in, in training, we're doing two things. One, we're trying to teach them about something specific, but we're also telling them In the larger sense whether our feedback is meaningful and whether they should listen to it and so like a very simple example of this is that we often undercut our feedback and build cultures where listening is not very important number one is i stop my players and let's just go back to the example of building out of the back and i say pause girls when we're building out of the back the ball has to be struck at pace on the ground that's critical we've got to move the opposition side to side rapidly let me see that now go girls start playing Great touch, Jenna. Super decision, Carly. Play it, you know, play it. I, I start narrating a completely different thing, set of things back to, back to the girls. I just stopped them to tell them that the most important thing right now is for them to strike the ball on the ground at pace. And then as I'm watching, I'm describing to them my watching process, and I'm looking for everything in the world except whether the ball is struck on the ground at pace. And what I'm telling them is when I stop practice and tell you to do something, I'm as likely to have forgotten it 15 seconds later. And so uh, distracted coach equals distracted player. So the first thing I wanna do is make sure that I focus on that one thing and let players know that I see whether they do it and give them feedback on it so they get better at it. Right? Focused coach equals focused player. And I think that's really critical. And then when we get to asking questions of players, I think this is one of the places where where we can take the most from the classroom, right? Questions are really important to engage players cerebrally. We want them to work as hard mentally as they do physically. But the best question in the world is only so good if only two or three kids and on, on the team answer it. And in most cases, from the trainings that I've observed, that's the case, right? coach asks a question and there's an awkward silence and no one answers it. And then two or three highly verbal kids maybe say something off the top, you know, the first thing off the top of their heads just to dissolve the silence where it's the same two super talkative kids who answer every single question and 10 guys are standing there and they know they're never going to answer a question and they know they're going to have to answer a question. And so in their minds, they're not engaged at all. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is just having this sense for like I've got to have a high participation ratio, which is everyone on the club, everyone in the field needs to feel accountable to answer every question. And one of the ways that I do that is by cold calling.